The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're fellowship with the Lord, ready to take in his Word and concentrate under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit so He can teach us and help us to understand the things and put all these things together that we've been studying in the Old Testament. So let's bow our heads together and open in prayer. Lord, we thank You for the opportunity we have to come together as a body of believers to worship You this morning through the study of Your Word that we might come to understand Your plans and purposes in history and Your character and how You are forever faithful to Your covenants and Your promises and how You have brought all things to completion from the Old Testament in the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who died on the cross as our substitute. Now, Father, as we study these things, we pray that we may be challenged by them, that our confidence in You might be strengthened for your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been studying through the Old Testament to get an orientation of what the Old Testament is all about. And I've been trying to answer the question, not so much what are all the facts, what are all the details, what, what happened when and who and all of that, some of that, but not a whole lot, but to give you an overview of the events and answer the question, why is it? that of all the thousands, if not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of events and activities and people that lived from the creation to the cross, why is it that it is only these few events and these few people that we are told about? Because in light of everything that happened, so much is left out, so much is left unrevealed to us about what happened, especially in those years before the flood. Why is it that these things are given to us and what is it that God is trying to, to tell us through these events. And what we saw as we started off the study in 1 Corinthians 10 is that the New Testament clearly tells us that these things are given to us as an example, a tupas. All of these events, all of these things happen to teach doctrine to New Testament believers. When we get into passages like 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, when Paul says, all scriptures God breathed, what he has in mind in that particular verse is not New Testament Revelation, as much as he does Old Testament revelation. He's addressing Timothy in the context he's talking to Timothy about his background, his training from his parents. And, of course, in that context, all Timothy had as a young man was the Old Testament. So in contrast to the view of many people in church age who somehow think, well, that's the Old Testament. It doesn't relate to today. Somehow even dispensationalists get that idea. That is not the view of the New Testament. 
the New Testament sees a vital role to the Old Testament. And there are many things that we learn there because we can see in those examples, in those people, in those events, in the historical things, how God works in history, that God is in control of history, that God works out his plan. And there are many principles of the New Testament church age spiritual life that are exemplified for us in these episodes in the Old Testament. Now, one last time to review the Old Testament, how it is structured. I want to beat this into your brain so it can't escape. Remember, one of the great hallmarks of, uh, I think, isagogical, categorical, exegetical teaching is not the principle that um, I want to teach things so you can remember them, but that I want to teach things so that you can't, re- can't forget them. There's a big difference between the two. You know, that's what I was taught in seminary, was you want to teach things in such a way that, that by Sunday afternoon or Monday morning, people can at least remember one or two of your points and maybe one application. I figure that's pretty shallow. You want to teach things over and over again so that people can't forget them. The Old Testament is divided in the, in the Hebrew into three sections, the Law, the Torah, the Prophets, both uh, the early Prophets and latter Prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Writings, the Ketuvim in our uh, English Bibles, we divide it a little differently into five sections. The first five books of the Bible make up the first section called the Law, which in the Hebrew is Torah, which really means instruction. That's the instruction of how to live, and that was written by Moses approximately 1440 B.C., while the Israelites are on the plains of Moab on the verge of entering into the Promised Land. This isn't the Exodus generation, but the generation that was born in the wilderness as they are about to advance into God's plan for the nation. Then we have the historical books. The historical books are divided into the early history, Joshua, Judges. Judges and Ruth were combined in the uh, Old Testament, in the Hebrew Old Testament. You have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. First and Second Samuel covered the period of the United Kingdom, uh, the reign of Saul, David, Solomon. Then in 931 B.C., with the death of Solomon, the nation goes through an internal revolt, a civil war, and the ten northern tribes under the leadership of Jeroboam revolt, and that becomes the nation of Israel. And then two tribes stay together in the south of Judah. Now, they stay together and they are kept together in order to have that continuous witness of the Davidic covenant on the throne. God promised David that there would always be his seed on the throne. Now, it's important to understand history, to understand these covenants and the covenant structure of the Old Testament. Remember, it was uh, in light of Abraham's call that God is working out his purposes now through a unique people, through the church, I mean, through the, uh, through the Israelites, through the Jews, and they are to be the witness. So God is going to demonstrate his faithfulness to that covenant despite their failures and their... Um, rejection of him. Of course, in the north, they continually are in a state of rejection and in violation of him, so that finally in 722 B.C., they are taken out in divine discipline through the uh, conquest of the Assyrians, and those ten northern tribes are then scattered in sort of a repopulation um, uh, policy of the Assyrians. Judah stays together until 586 B.C., when uh, the third invasion of Nebuchadnezzar the temple's destroyed, the city's overrun, and the southern nation goes out under divine discipline for the approximately 70-year captivity. Then, as we'll see in our final lesson this morning, 
in this area. In 539, Cyrus grants a decree for them to return to the land. (coughs) And this is covered historically in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now, if you want to put the other books, the poetic books, Job takes place sometime probably during the period from the Tower of Babel to the call of Abram. We're not sure. It doesn't doesn't say for sure. The Psalms are written mostly by David, but there are Psalms by by, uh, Moses, Psalms by uh, many others, even some post-exilic Psalms. So these are brought together during the period roughly from about the 10th century up through the 5th century B.C., we have the writings of Solomon, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, uh, Ecclesiastes, the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Although Daniel in the New Testament is usually, I mean in the uh, English, is usually viewed as a prophet. In the Hebrew collection, he is, uh, it's part of the writings. And that's because Daniel did not hold the office of prophet, even though he prophesied. In fact, what I think is that Daniel really belongs in that realm of, of wisdom literature. We studied wisdom literature with the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And I think that there's, a, there's an element to Daniel being wisdom literature because it's, it's teaching the Jews how to live wisely in the midst of the times of the Gentiles. And that's the prophecy portion of Daniel is to let the Jews know that God is going to have a future for the nation. But in the meantime, there will be the times of the Gentiles. And this is... And if you're going to live wisely, you have to understand God's prophetic timetable so that you can live accordingly. And the pre-exilic minor prophets, uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Nahum, Micah, and then the post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, that's the overview. That's the structure of the Old Testament. Now, the thematic verse that we saw was from Exodus 19:5 through 6a when God is calling Moses out to deliver the nation from slavery in Egypt. And Exodus 19 says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the purpose for Israel. So, so in one sense, all of history is... What's, let me coin a word here. Israelocentric. Israelocentric. All of history is centered on Israel and God's plans and purposes for Israel. So that as God promised in the Abrahamic covenant, those who, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And the, the word there for curse, it's two different words we saw in the Abrahamic covenant, and that is in literal translation, those who treat you lightly, I will Curse, I will judge mightily. So there's a difference between those two words for curse in the Hebrew, which indicates how seriously God takes his promise to work out his spiritual blessings through the nation Israel. Now, Israel fails in the Old Testament. They fail and they go out under divine discipline, then they come back and then they continue to fail and they reject Christ who comes as Messiah. Yet God has promised them that there is a future, and we've seen this in the prophecies of Daniel and Ezekiel in the last couple of weeks that God is going to restore the nation in all their glory, that the Shekinah glory of God that was present in the temple, that departed in Exodus, I mean in Ezekiel chapter 11, when Ezekiel had his vision of the Shekinah glory moving out from the temple up to the mountain and then to heaven, that this Shekinah glory returns, but not it did not return in the Old Testament and does not return until Christ comes in his millennial kingdom. And the point is, there is a future, and what we learn from that is, is a lesson that really comes through in the post-exilic period, 
And that is a principle that's true for all time. If God has a plan uh, that no matter how bad things get, if you're still alive, God has a plan for your life. No matter how you fail, no matter how horrible the circumstances might be, no matter how badly you might have messed up in your life, if you're still alive, then God still has a plan for your life and God is still faithful to us even though we have been unfaithful to Him. And this is what we see during the post-exilic period. Now, to put things in perspective in a, in a biblical timeline here, it doesn't really show up that well, does it? In the light? What we have here is this is the period right here of the divided kingdom. And then the period, dark, the dark shaded area here is the Babylonian captivity. And then you have the post-exilic period. Now, if you look down at the, this lower line here, you see this dark, slightly darker blue line is 500. Uh, it's a benchmark period of 500 B.C. The remnant returns around 539 to 535 B.C. And then you have the books of Ezra and Nehemiah under their leadership. The temple is rebuilt. Uh, you have the temple rebuilding starts here, and then the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and then down, uh, and you have your last prophets. Malachi is here. I don't see any other prophets on the chart. Malachi being the last book of the, of the uh, Old Testament. This is a slightly different graphic to show the relationship of the books. This is 500 B.C. Haggai and Zechariah are written just before that time period in 520 B.C. And then in the 5th century you have Esther, First and Second Chronicles, Nehemiah, and the last book written is Malachi. So that just sort of helps you orient to this time period. One thing we have to understand when we get into any of these books, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, any of the minor prophets, we have to understand the historical background. Now we go back to uh, Isaiah 44, 28, and we see the reference to Cyrus the Great in Isaiah 44:28. So open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 44. This is the great Cyrus oracle. We've looked at it a couple of times in the um, in our study the last couple of weeks. It took place in the seventh century B.C., so about 150 years before Cyrus was born. We have this extremely precise prophecy given by Isaiah to the. Um, Exile generation, this is what they have with them in Babylon during the exile to give them uh, comfort. As they have these, this, this prophecy, they know that God does have a plan. Now, at the end of Isaiah, he announces that there will be a someone who will come and bring them back from captivity. And so specific, he even names him. It is I... That is, I there refers to the Lord, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. He declares of Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Now, this refers to Cyrus, who is the first king of the Persian Empire. His dates are roughly from, as, as his reigning dates are roughly from 550 to 530 BC. And this is, he is the one who conquers the Babylonian uh, Empire and will de- give a decree for the nation Israel to go back to the land, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. 
Let's go on down. Remember, there weren't any chapter divisions when Isaiah wrote, so this chapter just divides the Cyrus oracle in an awkward place. Look at 45.1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand. And notice he calls Cyrus his anointed. That's the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means um, anointed one or appointed one. It doesn't mean, some people have suggested perhaps that that Cyrus was a believer, but that's not supported by any, any evidence, either scriptural or extra-biblical. He's appointed to subdue the nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. This would be anything that would prohibit the Israelites from returning home. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places. Now, this is God saying all he will do for Cyrus. <coughs> in order to allow Cyrus to accomplish his goal in relationship to Israel. In order that you may know that it is I... It is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen one. I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. So this shows the sovereignty of God over the affairs of man. Jesus Christ controls history, and he is the one who raises up kingdoms, and he is the one who who, uh, destroys kingdoms. Now, in fulfillment of this prophecy, when Cyrus united the Persian Empire by defeating the Medes in approximately 550 B.C., he comes to the throne in 540 540 B.C., he defeats the Medes. And then he devises a plan to conquer the Babylonians. And it's a quite a feat of engineering. He it brings his army, apparently... In, in secret, either they were in secret or the Babylonians were in such arrogance over the fortress of Babylon. And we've seen how the walls of Babylon were around 60 feet tall and uh, uh, they were wide enough for six chariots to run all the, go around the, the entire perimeter, six uh, abreast, or, or excuse me, four abreast, and so that it was a mighty fortress. The walls were extremely thick and they felt like they were impregnable. And what we see in the map here, is the blue line running down through the city is the river Euphrates. And what Cyrus did was he divided his army and he took one part of his army, which were his crack troops, and he split them in two. And he put one unit up on the north side of the city and one on the south side of the city, one where the, where the uh, river entered, one where the uh, river exited the city. And then he took the majority of his army up north of the city where they had discovered, uh, off the map here, up north of the city, where they had discovered a huge bog area. And they then dug a trench, a canal, to this bog area and diverted the river so that it would overflow into this bog area. And the river itself, as it proceeded through the city, would dry up. Now, you see the way the Babylonians had built the city. There's this, the blue line around the perimeter is the moat. And once the river was diverted and dried up, then there was... Uh, an entryway under the under the gates, under the wall where the water had, had been had, had been flowing. And so while the Babylonians are having a huge party, and that's described in Daniel chapter six with the handwriting on the wall and Belshazzar and all the nobles are there and they're having a huge uh, drunken orgy, uh, they think they're in, they're impregnable. 
the army of Cyrus is outside drying up the river Euphrates and they march into Babylon without, uh, without any opposition, with, with no battle, and they conquer the Babylonians in one swift blow overnight and they raid the treasuries, they take all of the, all of the uh, wealth that the Babylonians had accumulated over the years through their conquest and including all the temple treasuries when they had conquered Jerusalem. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar had gone into the temple and taken all of the gold. Remember the beauty of Solomon's temple. He had taken all of the gold out and removed all the furniture and everything back to Babylon. Well, that's still there. Well, Cyrus, when Cyrus comes along, Cyrus it institutes a policy, and no one knows why he is this way, but his policy is to free the captive people. It's not just Jews that are captives in Babylon, but there are many other nations that had been uh, conquered by the Babylonians, and he sets a policy to restore the uh, native peoples back to their land. And he not only is going to uh, give a decree for the Jews to go back to the land, but he's going to send back all the temple articles with them, so he's going to give back these things. So there's a uh, he doesn't hoard this wealth for himself. So the first king, to get a little background on the Persian Empire, which is necessary to understand all that goes on during this period, the first great king is Cyrus the Great, who conquers the Medes and then uh, conquers the Babylonians. And so it's called the, um, the, the, they're really the Medes and the Persians, but the Persians are the dominant force, and it's the Media Persian Empire. He, is, um, he unites the empire, and he institutes this policy to restore captives, to, to their lands, and he issues decrees. We do have one cylinder that archaeologists have discovered that that has on it the uh, decree of Cyrus to the nation to return to their land, to their homelands. He, uh, in 530 B.C., he has an insurrection on the border in Central Asia, and he goes out to put down this insurrection, and he's mortally wounded in battle. And his son Cambyses takes the throne from 530 to 522 B.C., now, Cambyses is important because he is going to further expand the Persian Empire by conquering Egypt. So he will extend the empire all the way to the borders of Ethiopia. And in order to secure his power when he first comes to the throne, I mean, reading about these people is like watching a, you know afternoon soap opera. In order to secure the throne, he kills, has his brother killed. But he doesn't tell anybody. He tries to keep it secret. It's interesting how things always seem to find you out eventually. But he, tried, he keeps it secret. Nobody knows that his brother is, has been killed. So he leaves on a military campaign, goes down and conquers the Egyptians, extends the border to Ethiopia, and then, be, then there's a few that have discovered that the brother is dead, and one of these men assumes the identity of his dead brother. The people don't know that the brother's dead, so somebody comes in, assumes the identity of his brother, and uh, claims to be the rightful heir to the throne and takes over. So Cambyses has to uh, hurry back to... Um, the capital from Egypt, and by the time he gets there, this uh, imposter has consolidated power. The uh, coup has been victorious, so Cambyses takes the honorable way out and commits suicide. Now, the name of the uh, usurper was Galmata, and he only lasted about three months before it was discovered that, that he was an imposter, and so a cousin of of uh, Cambyses, a member of the royal family, then has Galmata assassinated. So Galmata is only on the throne really for about two to three months, and he is succeeded by Darius I, who is one of the, uh, again, one of the greater uh, 
rulers of the Persian Empire from 522 to 586. Now, he consolidates the kingdom, puts down various revolts because he has to pull all of his power together. And he heads to Egypt in order to put down a revolt there. Now, as he's headed for Egypt, he has to pass through Judea. As he passes through Judea, and this is just two years after he takes the throne in 520, he discovers that there is a major conflagration going on in Judea. Cyrus had issued a decree for the Jews to rebuild the temple, but they were going through opposition from some of the locals to the Samaritans, and so there's a big fight, and, and they had worked, they had laid the foundation for the new temple, they had put in the, the um, altars for the sacrifices, and that was it. And for, for about 10 or 12 years now, all work on the temple had ceased. There was opposition from, from the Samaritans. And when, uh, when a Darius shows up, uh, the Jews go to him in order to uh, uh, take their complaint to him to see, get the Samaritans to cease their operation. Darius uh, goes through the archives, discovers that Cyrus had indeed issued a decree for them to rebuild the temple. So he uh, tells orders the Samaritans and his local governor to quit uh, opposing the Jews in the, in the uh, rebuilding of the temple. And so they, they once again rebuild the temple. Now, this is going to be in conjunction with what we'll see in a minute with the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, who the people during this time, once they get a little opposition, how easy it is for us to say, this isn't God's will for my life because I'm encountering a little difficulty. See, that's what often happens with people is they think something's God's will, and it is, and they start doing it, and then they encounter some opposition. It's a little difficulty, a little difficult. They go through some suffering and uh, a little angelic conflict. And they say, oh, this really isn't God's will for my life. I'm going to do something else. And so the people have become um, concerned more about their day-to-day life and accumulating wealth and security and, and developing their, uh, their economic position. <coughs> and we're no longer concerned with the things of the Lord. So... Two or three things are happening together as God works out His plan. You have the the preaching, prophesying ministry of Zechariah Haggai, and then from a secular level, Darius comes along and removes the hostility. And uh, within four years then, by 516, the temple is rebuilt. Remember, it's 586 B.C. the temple is destroyed. 516 B.C. the temple is restored. Seventy years. God's timing is always detailed. It's always impeccable. This shows us that Jesus Christ controls history and again reminds us that no matter how bad things look for us at times, if you're alive, God still has a plan for your life. Now, the next emperor is Xerxes, who reigns from 486 to 465 B.C. He has a a remarkable uh, reign, and he, uh, he is also called in the Old Testament Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. This is the Ahasuerus of Esther. And like his father Darius, he has a desire to expand the borders of Persia, and he looks westward towards Greece, and he decides that he is the one who is going to conquer the Greeks. So he organizes his armies and navies, and he has uh, somewhere around three or four million uh, in his armies and navies, and he heads west. And so the east is going to conquer the west. And he crosses the Hellespont and heads into Greece. Now, at this time, the Greek city-states were divided. Uh, They all spoke different dialects, although there was a similarity. They all spoke different dialects. This is before the the, uh, great uh, period of their 
uh, Golden Age, which comes later in this century. And they head down the Greek peninsula and they start conquering the Greeks. Now, the Greeks finally unite under uh, and try to pull it together. And in order to buy some time, you have the what I call the Greek Alamo. You know, for those of you who aren't familiar with Texas history, the Alamo is where uh, 180 Texans bought time for Sam Houston so that he could organize an army and then eventually defeat Santa Ana and gain Texas independence. We always have to honor that. Back in the old days when we still thought things were good and true in Texas, you always got a holiday on April 21st. You never went to school on San Jacinto Day or on Texas Independence Day. They don't do that anymore because we've lost all concepts of patriotism. But back when things were still good, we did that. Well, the Battle of Thermopylae was like the, uh, the Greek Alamo. They had 300 Spartans. These were the crack troops of the uh, Greek Empire. And, in, in fact, there's a novel, historical novel, that's just been written. It's out in paperback. Anne gave it to me, and I've been reading it lately, that is all about Thermopylae, and it's called Gates of Fire. And it is, it is very interesting, fascinating study. Um, written by a guy who is a classics professor. So he has all of his history right, throws in a lot of Greek terms, and it's an interesting historical novel. He's sort of done for Thermopylae what, um, oh, uh, what's his name, Michael, um, I can't remember his last name, did with Killer Angels for the Battle of Gettysburg. So if you're interested in that, it's, it's quite good. 300 Spartans, these are the crack troops. These guys, the training they went through was something probably not unlike what, uh, what SEALs or Special Forces guys go through today. They were crack troops, and they, as, as you head down, as you head south down the Greek peninsula, everything sort of narrowed into this one pass where there were some hot, hot springs, and the Greeks would go in order to take the baths and everything, and that's why it's called Gates of Fire, which is what Thermopylae means. And it was a very narrow pass, and so all of Xerxes' mighty army had to be squeezed down to go through this one pass, and these 300 Spartans held their ground and uh, several hundred thousand Persians lost their lives uh, until the last Spartan was killed. But that bought time for the rest of the Greek states to put together their army and navy and eventually to defeat the Persians, which they did at the naval battle of Salamis, where Xerxes lost over 200 ships. Well, Xerxes had to lick his wounds, so he just went home, left the army in charge of one of his generals, and he took solace, according to Herodotus, in his harem. Now, his queen, Vashti, doesn't like to go along with him. So Vashti's out and he looks for a new queen and that's going to be Esther. See how all of this fits together. You have to understand your secular history to be able to really understand the dynamics of what's going on inside the scriptures. So Xerxes goes home, takes solace in his harem, and that sets up the stage for the episodes in Esther. Xerxes is succeeded by his son Artaxerxes from 465 to 424. He is the one, Artaxerxes I, is the one who in 444 B.C. gives the um, authorization, the decree for the Jews to rebuild the temple wall, I mean the uh, city walls of Jerusalem, which is a phenomenal decree because to rebuild the wall means he's giving them military autonomy. And that is what kicks off, as we saw last week, in our study of Daniel's prophetic timetable, the 70 weeks or 490 years of Daniel 9, that it is this decree of Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. that kicks off that, that timetable. 
He's succeeded by Xerxes II, who doesn't last but a few months on the throne from 424 to 423, then Darius II from 423 to 404, and Artaxerxes II from 404 to 350. Now, this is a map that gives us an idea of the extent of the Persian Empire, and you can see from it that it is quite extensive. They, conquer, they crossed the Hellespont, conquered the northern part of Greece, so they're in Europe. They're in northern Africa, what is now modern Libya and Egypt, down to the borders of, of Ethiopia over in this area. So you see the vast area they cover here, all through Asia Minor, what's modern Turkey, Syria, Israel, down through Iraq and Iran, all the way down to the Indus River. So northern India, uh, modern Afghanistan, all of this area is all under uh, Persian control. So they were the largest empire to date. During this period of time that uh, the Persian Empire is dominating, there are six books that are mentioned in the scriptures that close out our, our, our study. You have Haggai, Zechariah, and then the last prophet, Malachi. Then you have three historical books, Ezra and Nehemiah, which in the Hebrew was, was really one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, and then the book of, uh, then the book of Esther. In the Hebrew Bible, the, the uh, Chronicles, the First and Second Chronicles are also written during this period to boost the confidence of the nation in their return to the land. <coughs> I want to begin by looking at, at um, the two post-exilic prophets that worked together to uh, challenge the nation to get their focus back on doctrine and to rebuild the temple. And this is Haggai and Zechariah. So turn to Haggai. You'll find it in your Bible. It's that dog-eared section that you've been to so often. Just wanted to see if anybody was still awake this morning. It's the third book from the end, Haggai. <coughs> Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Haggai tells us, he gives us a specific time period at the beginning of the book as to when he writes. In the second year of Darius the king, this is Darius the first, Histospes. This would be, remember they, because of the way they dated, this dates it to 520. 520 B.C., they didn't count the first year. If he came up in the middle of a year, that wasn't considered the first year. That was the accession year. So it's only the first full year that he's on the throne that they count as the first year. So the second year, he came to the throne 522, but that's the accession year. 521 is the first year. 520 is the second year. Second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So Joshua is identified with the high priest here. Now what we see by a corollary, corollary passage in Ezra 5 is this statement by Ezra. When the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of, of, uh, be the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now that just gives you a location in history that Ezra identifies the fact that it is, in that passage, that it is the, the uh, ministry, the prophetic ministry of Haggai and Zechariah that God uses to bring the nation back to a focus on God. See, what's happened is they've just become consumed with um, 
their own personal security and their own personal comfort. They're, they're not at all concerned with rebuilding the house of the Lord. You read in here it says that they, they're, uh, verse 4, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Now the idea there is that they're, they're busy building very comfortable dwellings for themselves and um, focusing on the details of life. And God says, is it time for you to dwell in your panel houses while this house, that is the house of the Lord, lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And this is the theme of, the, of Haggai. It's repeated again in verse 7. Consider your ways. It's time to take a, a personal assessment of your life and to see what you are doing, what your priorities are like. And your priority needs to be on the Word of God and the honor and the glory of God, which is exemplified by rebuilding the temple. Your priorities are all askew. You're totally consumed with your own uh, personal lives and your own personal the personal details of your life, and you're not at all con- concerned with me. This is completely uh, contrary to the attitude of the psalmist, who said that um, zeal for thy house has consumed me. And we saw that same passage applied to Jesus Christ when he clen- cleansed the temple. And it's the same temple. This temple that is being rebuilt is the second temple. It's the same temple that is there when, when Jesus comes in, in uh, the first advent. It, it, there's a massive uh, renovation campaign that is carried on by, uh, by Herod the Great to make it more glorious than the Solomonic Temple, but that doesn't come till much later. At this stage, it's going to be a very simple temple, and when it is finished in 516, the uh, Jews weep because it is so much smaller and so much less glorious than the Solomonic Temple. But look at the promise that God gives to them in the, in the second chapter. Verse 2, look at 2.2. Two, two. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Now Zerubbabel is a member of the royal family. He's probably a descendant of, of Jehoiakim. And he is the governor of Judah. And to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does, does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? There are very few that are left who survived the 70-year the, uh, captivity. They would have just been children if they, any of them came back. And, and most of them had never lived in Israel, so they just have... Uh, legend to go by or stories that have been passed down from their parents' generation. But God gives them a comfort prophecy in verse 4. Now, take courage, Zerubbabel, declares Yahweh. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you. In other words, this is my plan. You're still in my plan. I haven't forgotten the Abrahamic covenant. And even though this temple overtly does not have the splendor, the majesty of the Solomonic Temple, this temple will be more glorious than the Solomonic Temple. Verse 5, As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. And that's the passage we looked at in Exodus chapter 19, 5 and 6. My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land, I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of the nations and I will fill this house with glory. Now, when does that occur? That occurs at the first advent. When Jesus Christ, the second person in Trinity, uh, takes on flesh and comes to this temple. So this is a prophecy that this temple has to survive long enough for the Messiah to come. 
Verse 9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Why? Because it sees the coming of Messiah. Now, it's in uh, 70 A.D. that the Roman armies under Titus invade Israel and destroy the temple. So, this tells us that this gives us a parameter that the Messiah had to come before 70 A.D. So, that's something you can just sort of keep in the back of your mind the next time you get a chance to uh, witness to a Jew, is that you can remember this. It was interesting last week when I was um, in Houston on Saturday performing a wedding that uh, one of the wedding guests that sat across the table from me was a Jewish man with a fascinating history. He is the president of the Holocaust Survivors Association in Houston, and he was uh, 12 years old when he was sent to Bergen-Belsen to begin with. And it was his job uh, as, to pull the teeth out of the uh, bodies of those that had been killed in the gas chambers. He was, um, he was taken with his family. He was with his father, and his father wanted to keep him together. And he and his father both survived, and they went through the entire Holocaust together, which was extremely unusual. But when they got all the families together, the... Uh, Nazi officers made all the kids under a certain height come forward. And his father was at the back of the crowd and made this boy stand on a pile of bricks so that he was higher than the standard. And they took all the kids up and they just came along and and, uh, shot him in the head. And so he watched his little sister get executed right in front of him. But we were talking, and of course it was interesting because everyone else at the table uh, was from Baraka. So we sort of did a tag team witness on him. We didn't push it too far. You never want to make anybody feel uncomfortable or, or outnumbered. And uh, it's interesting that over the course of the past five or six um, months, about seven or eight people from Baraka have all gotten to make this man's acquaintance. So it'll be interesting to see how that witness continues. But you never know what kind of an opportunity you're going to have just to say one or two things that will cause someone to think. You never, never think that you're going to get a chance like that and you're going to um, make the final closing of their conversion. So you just get a few opportunities and these are the kinds of things that are helpful to keep in the back of your mind when you're talking or witnessing to, to a Jew is that uh, ask them questions about, well, what do you think about the Messiah? When do you think the Messiah will come? Well, how do you handle a passage like the prophecy in Haggai 2 which says that the glory of the Messiah must come before the destruction of the second temple? How do you handle that? Things like that. Give them something to think about. So this is the message of Haggai is that God still has a plan for the nation and He is going to uh, restore them to the land. Now, Zechariah (coughs) is also concerned with this same period. His uh, book is much more concerned with the coming of Messiah. He focuses on the coming of the Messiah, and he too uh, is concerned with the rebuilding of the temple and challenging the nation to uh, to rebuild the temple. Now we go to I want to go to one other book to give you a brief overview, and that is uh, Esther. Esther takes place outside the land. So turn back with me to. Uh, just prior to Job, Esther is the last of the historical books in the Old Testament. Ezra, we're kind of working backward a little bit here, but there's a reason for that. Esther, I think, is written 
about the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah, but Esther takes place outside the land. So I want to take I want to look at Esther first because that's dealing with those out of the land, and then we'll close out with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, which are focusing on the Jews who have returned to the land. Now the background here, as I stated earlier, is that Xerxes, known as Ahasuerus, in um, in this book, returns from his defeat in, at Salamis and takes comfort in his harem, and he calls out um, he ca- calls out uh, Esther here, and it fits into the overall context of this time period. There's back and forth. You see the beginning of his reign, then he leaves, and then he comes back, and um, it is here in Susa where you have the great palace. He spends, during the first 20 years of his reign, he's concerned with building projects. In the middle of that, after the third year, or the third or fourth year, he heads to Greece. Then he comes back after his defeat and finishes rebuilding the capital and moves it to Susa, which is the scene for much of the activity in, um, in Esther. Now, what happens, basically, just to summarize it, you, one, of the, um, one of the key figures is a man named Haman, and Haman is anti-Semitic, and Haman uh, finagles a way to get the king to pass legislation and Medes and the Persians is unbreakable to get uh, Xerxes to pass um, legislation that all the Jews are to be killed on a particular day, that when this day comes, anybody can go out and kill a Jew and get away with it. And so... Um, he works at that, but Esther's uncle Mordecai, who, who gets wind of the plot, goes to Esther, who has been taken into the harem of Ahasuerus, goes to Esther and pleads with her that God has put her in this position now in, in, the, um, in the harem of uh, Ahasuerus in order to uh, intercede for her people. So she goes and stands before the king, which was a very challenging thing to do because if the king, if you walk in and just imposed yourself for an audience, if the king did not... Re- uh, recognize you, then you were to be executed. So she goes in, the king recognizes her, and she makes a plea for her people. And when Xerxes re- understands what he did, he reverses the edict, and instead of having the Jews becoming the the um, focus, he makes Haman's people, the, the uh, Hagagites, the focus of the edict. And in the process, the Jews kill over 75,000 uh, Hagagites. Now, there's a number of interesting problems related to the book of Esther. First of all, the name of God is never mentioned once. This is one reason why the Jews did not think the book was canonical for some time. There's no mention of God. <coughs> it's a tremendous time of distress when the Jews are uh, under persecution. They're going to be killed. And they never call on the God. In fact, at one point, they come right up to a place where they're fasting, but they don't call on God. You would expect that that's exactly what you read when you're reading along, that they're going to fast and then call upon the Lord, but it just stops there. They never call on the name of the Lord. Why is it that God is not mentioned here? Secondly, how do you deal with this book against the background of what happened with the Jews in the Holocaust? See, here you see God's sovereign protection of the nation against genocide in their Gentile captivity, and this did not happen in the Holocaust. So that's a, an important question that needs to be addressed. And then third, we need to ask the question, what is our attitude towards this massacre, these 75,000 egg guys? And I think the answer to all these questions 
flows from understanding that what the book of Esther is doing is showing us God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant towards protecting the Jews even when they're out of fellowship. And what I mean by that is they're out of the land. Isaiah had prophesied, and we looked at the prophecy a couple of weeks ago, that when he announced the captivity that would come, he also announced the coming of Cyrus. And at the conclusion, I think, of chapter 45, he says, flee back to the land. So God's will for the nation is, at the conclusion of the captivity, for all the Jews to go back to the land. The vast majority never return to Israel. They're out of the will of God. So therefore, they're out of fellowship. They are not concerned with the things of the Lord. And they are staying in Babylon. So they have rejected God's will and God's plan for their life. So the book of Esther then shows how God continues to care for the believer, even though the believer is out of fellowship. In this case, how he continues to be faithful to the Abrahamic covenant towards the Jews, even though they are in reversionism, they don't care anything about him. And we see how he protects them despite that, um, despite their disobedience. That's why there's no calling on God. They're not concerned with the things of the Lord at all. But God does preserve and protect them. Now when we come forward to the 20th century and we see an episode like the Holocaust, we see, I think, the, the work of God even in the midst of all that evil. I always go back when I think about the Holocaust, which is a major, major problem for many Jews to deal with when it comes to thinking about God. They, they're concerned with this whole question of evil. How can a good God allow this to happen? And the problem that we run into anytime you're addressing somebody and they're, they're concerned about this question uh, of, of evil, of how can a good God allow suffering in the world? Either he's not omnipotent, because if he were omnipotent, then he could control evil, or he's not good, because if he were good, then he wouldn't allow all this evil. See, see they're assuming they know some absolutes. That's the problem. As soon as you come along and say, well, you're assuming that there can't be a greater good. When somebody raises the problem of evil, See, the answer to the problem of evil is that God has all knowledge. He's omniscient. And he knows that there's a greater good and a greater purpose. And if God were to stop all suffering, he would have to stop all sin. And that would terminate human history. And God is working out a plan because there is a greater good. The person who raises the question of the goodness of God in all of this, and this is the exact problem that this individual was raising who had gone through the, the camp. I mean, he went through Bergen-Belsen, he went through Auschwitz, and he saw... You know, family members killed, he saw. He, he just witnessed, he went through horrible things having to go into the, the, the death chambers afterwards and remove all the valuables and strip the bodies and all this. You just can't imagine, I can't imagine the horror that he was exposed to between the age of 12 and 16. <coughs> and so the question in his mind is a very real question. How can a good God allow this to happen? Now, when I address this, I see eyes glaze over every now and then, you know, like this is some great academic question, but this is not just an academic question. This is a very real question that many people raise and is a stumbling stone to them or, or a question that they're honestly asking as they're, in, in some cases, truly seeking to understand the gospel. And the point is that they, they miss is that in the midst of asking that question, they're assuming this always happens. I'm, not thinking in a straight line this morning. Between decongestants and a cold, my brain's fogged up as well as my nasal cavity. We have to remember the old line I have here, the creator is above the line and the creature is below the line. And when the creature, Romans 1, rejects the creator, he always takes something that he, from the, 
creation under below the line and tries to move that up on top of the line and then deify it. In spell this morning. Deify it. He's going to make it God. And so what he's doing is he's deifying his own absolute and his own thinking. And the hidden assumption in that whole argument against evil is that I know enough. I know so much that I know as a creature that there can't possibly be an absolute. There can't possibly be a standard. There can't possibly be a good that is greater than all other goods that could possibly justify the existence of suffering in the realm of the creation. What have you just done? You just said, I know more than I know everything. And man doesn't. Man is man's intellect is limited, his experience is limited. We know probably less than one tenth of one percent of what there is is to know that's possible as a creature to know. And yet we're, we're automatically assuming that we know more than God knows to, in order to raise that question. So the thing to do in a witnessing situation is to try to demonstrate, in some sense, the, the uh, inconsistencies and the uh, rational problem in that argument. And, and I did something like that in that, that day at lunch last week, is that um, this, uh, what opened the ball on the... Um, witnessing situation was that this individual was talking about Judaism and he was referencing the um, the uh, the Jews, the um, um, extremely orthodox Jews, and he said, you know, they think their way is the only way, and anybody who thinks their way is the only way to God is is uh, uh, such a dogmatic statement that, that I, I think that's automatically wrong. And I just looked at him and I said, so what you're saying, what you're trying to tell me is that anyone who says their way is the only way is, um, is, is wrong. So you just told me that every way is the way to God and anything else is wrong. Anybody, and that's the, you're making the same kind of statement. See, anytime propositionally you make a statement like every way leads to God, you're making a positive statement. Every way leads to God. Well, and, and that's just as dogmatic as the statement, there's only one way to God. You just said what your one way is. It's every way. And so you turn the table back on them and say, well, that's a totally inconsistent statement. You saw the light bulb kind of went, turned on and flickered. And then the lady next to me, you know, drove, drove the gospel tank through the opening in the wall. So you... Always have to understand these questions to be able to answer them because you never know when you're going to get the opportunity to explain the gospel to somebody and uh, maybe the Lord will use that to generate some thinking. So what we see here in this whole episode is Israel out of fellowship. So the the assault, the uh, killing of the 75,000 is not necessarily something that God approves of. It is simply the reporting of a historical fact. So that's the book of Esther. Then Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story about the rebuilding of the temple. And Ezra, Ezra is a priest. He's a Zedekite priest who returns to the land and uh, is rebuilding the, the temple. And that's the focus there in the reestablishment of the priesthood. <coughs> so that the nation has a central rallying point now. The temple is going to be rebuilt. Sacrifices are going to be reinstated. 
priesthood is reinstated, so now there is a point of cohesion and unity for the nation so that they can survive and go forward. Now what happens during this period as Ezra comes in and lays the, lays the foundation is that uh, it also lays the foundation for the legalism of the Pharisaical period. You go back, you get into the New Testament, you look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. Those groups were born during this period under Ezra. I'm not saying that Ezra started them. I'm saying this is when they rise to the forefront because what happens is the people are still in failure. They're still in spiritual failure. They return to the land, but now what they do, because they were disciplined for idolatry, they return and they become legalistic about the application of the law so that the law becomes an external system, an external religious system. There's all this ritual, but there's no reality. There's no understanding of the relationship to God. And then uh, in the next generation, the temple has been re- the temple is rebuilt under the ministry of, of um, Haggai, Zechariah. Nehemiah comes back in 444 B.C. with the commission from Xerxes to rebuild, or from Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall. And there's the rebuilding of the wall, and it is a feat, it's an engineering feat, because they do it in a very, uh, very short time. He organizes the people. There's a, it's a real textbook also on leadership and organization. And he rebuilds the wall, and in the midst of it, they recover the law, and they stand up and they gather all the people, and they read through the whole book of the law to the entire nation, and everyone stands up and listens to the oral instruction from the law. Not like today when everybody wants to sit in comfortable pews. Nobody would stand up for an hour or two hours to listen, listen to the reading of the word. But it is the reading of the law at that time that does produce a true repentance, change of heart on the part of the nation. And there is a tr- one of those true and rare spiritual revivals in the nation under the ministry of Nehemiah as a result of his reading of the word. But this doesn't last long, and then the last prophet of the Old Testament is Malachi. Malachi comes and challenges the nation because of their, their inconsistent application, their superficial application. They're not even uh, bringing uh, uh, their tithes under the Mosaic Law to the temple. Storehouse is the treasury there. That doesn't have anything to do with New Testament tithing. That has to do with the application of the Old Testament law. And so Malachi challenges the, the people because of their disobedience. And at the end of Malachi... There is the prophecy that in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Now that is a prophecy of John the Baptist. Malachi is the last prophet, and for the next 400 years, there will be silence from the Lord. There will no longer be a prophet. It always amazes me how in the church age you have people come along and they say, well, how can Revelation cease? Well, we have precedent in the Old Testament. Revelation ceased for 400 plus years and it has ceased during the New Testament because Revelation is complete. But in the intertestamental period, you can read in the Maccabees, they knew that God was no longer speaking to them. They knew that there wasn't a prophet. And this is why when suddenly John the Baptist appears on the scene, that the people flocked to hear him because they knew he was a prophet. It was a self-authenticating message. And now they knew God is doing something. This is the messenger of Malachi. That's who John the Baptist claimed to be. And so the people went out to see him because they knew God was again working and speaking to the nation. And I think thousands uh, trusted the Lord and responded to his message and the message of the Lord, but the leadership didn't. And the vast majority of the people rejected the Lord. 
and that is the tragedy is that in the New Testament, Israel continued to repeat the, the negative volition of the Old Testament, and so they're taken out under divine discipline in 70 A.D., but God still has a future for them, and that they will be restored to the land at the end of the tribulation, a spiritual restoration, and then they will go into the millennium where all of the promises of the Davidic covenant, real estate covenant, Abrahamic covenant, new covenant will be fulfilled for the nation of Israel. So that wraps up our orientation to the Old Testament so you can see how all these things fit together, how God is working things out. The Bible must be taken as a whole, and we see in the New Testament the fulfillment of all of these events in the Old Testament. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. (coughs) Father, we do thank you so much that we have your word, and there's so many things in your word that are authenticated to us as, as your revelation to us of your work in history. Father, we thank you that you are always faithful despite our unfaithfulness, so much so that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross for us as our substitute. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation and certain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would make that sure. All that you require is that we put our faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not an issue of moral reformation, church attendance, church membership, or any other human factor. It is simply an issue of trusting in Christ's substitutionary death on the cross alone as our salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to think through and understand the tremendous scope of events in the Old Testament, that we can see there how you never leave or forsake us, and that if we are still alive, no matter what has happened, you still have a plan for our lives, that we might be encouraged by this and challenged to pursue spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.